Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified Story Grid editors Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global Fullscap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. It's the harsh realities of modern warfare this week with the 2008 war film, The Hurt Locker. The Oscar-winning screenplay is by Mark Bowl based on his own experience as an embedded journalist in the Iraq War. The movie was directed by Catherine Bigelow, who won the Best Director Oscar that year. Only five women directors in the history of the Academy Awards have been nominated, and to this day, Bigelow is the only woman to have won. Here's a synopsis of the story adapted from Wikipedia. In 2004, Sergeant William James, a former U.S. Army Ranger, arrives in Iraq to lead the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit, EOD, replacing a sergeant who's been killed by an IED. His team includes J.T. Sanborn and Owen Eldridge. Sanborn considers Sergeant James's maverick disposal methods so reckless that on a disposal mission, he openly contemplates killing him by accidentally triggering an explosion. On the way back to camp, the team encounters a group of British mercenaries who have captured two Iraqis. Enemy snipers open fire on them. In the ensuing shootout, the mercenaries and the prisoners are killed, leaving Sanborn, Eldridge and James to a long, tense standoff in the desert before Sanborn is able to dispatch the last sniper. Back at camp, they drunkenly celebrate their victory. Another day, the camp psychiatrist who's been looking after Eldridge rides along on a raid. There, Sergeant James discovers the body of a youth he believes is an Iraqi he befriended who goes by the name Beckham. A bomb has been surgically implanted in the body. As the unit evacuates the area, the psychiatrist triggers an IED and is killed. Eldridge blames himself for this death. When Sergeant James decides to hunt for the insurgents responsible for the death of Beckham, Sanborn and Eldridge reluctantly follow. Insurgents capture Eldridge, and in rescuing him, James accidentally shoots him in the leg. Before being airlifted out for surgery, Eldridge angrily blames his injury on James and his adrenaline addiction. The following morning, Beckham reappears, not dead after all. James ignores him. In the last two days of their rotation, the EOD unit is called out on another mission. An innocent Iraqi civilian has had a bomb vest strapped to his chest. James tries to cut off the locks to remove the vest, but there are too many of them to cut the man free in time. He abandons the man, who is killed when the bomb explodes. Sanborn feels distraught over the man's death. He confesses to James that he can no longer cope with the pressure and wants to go home and have a son. After their rotation ends, Sergeant James returns home 
and becomes quickly bored by routine civilian life, confessing to his infant son that there is only one thing that he knows he loves. He starts a tour of duty with another EOD unit for another 365-day rotation. Now we turn to the six core questions. And the first one is, what's the global genre? Jari, you're going to handle that for us today. Yeah, thanks, uh, Leslie. So I saw this as a war. Obviously, it's a war movie, anti-war. One of the things that we always look for in a war movie is the brotherhood component. And I didn't really see a strong brotherhood component like I saw in A Midnight Clear or even Platoon, which for me is more of a brotherhood movie, but even Platoon is considered anti-war movie. And so the the anti-war aspect of this is just the sheer chaos, uh, what's going on in every aspect of war. You get this first person shooter embedded reporter type vibe. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the point of view. Not only do you feel like you're there, you feel the chaos and the randomness. It's just eerie. The protagonist, which is Sergeant James, in my opinion, is pretty consistent in his behaviors and attitudes. I mean, his worldview doesn't change. He just loves the rush of war. He's, I think he's actually addicted. For me, this internal genre is kind of weak. But if I had to pick one, and I know we're going to argue a little bit about this, it'd be status pathetic for Sergeant James. I mean, he just can't overcome his love of war. He he wants to be more than a soldier, but he just keeps on, you know, because he's got a family and, a, and he's a father. He just can't do it. And I'm kind of borderline think he's a little psychopathic, <laughs> but uh, for me, it was really hard to kind of pin it down. So in all war movies, there's a little bit of brotherhood. I mean, they do try to bond, but I mean, Sergeant James is just kind of in it for himself. So, but I do think it's an anti-war movie uh, from the main, the main global genre. Thanks, Jari. I'd argue that James is not a psychopath at all, but an addict. He shows a lot of human qualities, compassion, remorse, sorrow, affection, uh, some desire to be a father. He also shows genuine leadership in several places, but he's an addict, and his need for his fix blinds him to the danger that he creates for others, just like every addict does. Yeah, I would say for the internal genre, I would argue for morality testing surrender plot. In this case, for a morality story, you have someone who is they're sophisticated, they have a, you know, advanced worldview, they understand the way the world works, the consequences of their own actions, that kind of thing, and they have a very strong will. Where like someone in the status pathetic would be they have a weak will and, you know, they haven't been shown the way the world works, that kind of thing. So, for here, I feel like they make a pretty clear argument for morality testing surrender because the way that the movie ends it ends with him choosing to return. And morality stories are all about choices. They're all about the character making a choice based on their you know, moral compass or their will or that kind of thing. So in this case, because it ends with him choosing to return, it's him surrendering to his addiction. I also liked, there's a quote where he's talking to his son and he says, you know, as you get older, some of the things you love might not seem so special. The older you get, the fewer things you really love. When you get my age, it might only be one or two things. And then he pauses and then he says, with me, I think it's one. So in this case, he fully understands and sees himself. He's very sophisticated about what he is. And then when he goes back to war, it's him accepting himself. Um, He knows what he is. He is an addict and he surrenders to it. 
Also, it's kind of ironic because, you know, a morality story is about selfishness versus altruism. And so are you going to be, you know, giving of your gift for yourself or are you giving of your gift to benefit others, right? And in this case, it's it's really ironic because he is a bomb tech. He walks into a dangerous situation to disarm bombs so that other people don't die, but he does it for a selfish reason. He does it because it makes him feel good, not necessarily to keep his brotherhood safe, which we see throughout the movie. So again, that's that morality testing he's making these choices he has a gift but he's using it for himself and in the end he succumbs to that and surrenders yeah i mean i i guess i see that it's just there's parts of this where he really wants to be the guy back home with the family and you know taking care of his son and he just can't he just can't do it The, the pull is too great it's muddied for me. I don't. I think it's a pretty weak internal genre, to be honest. So maybe that's why I'm getting a little uh, uh, wrapped around the axle on it. And I did see a little bit of the Brotherhood story. Now I agree with you that it's not presented in the way it is in a Midnight Clear or even Platoon, but they are a brotherhood. James is a maverick, no doubt about that. He doesn't play by the rules at all, but. When push comes to shove, he does support his team. Like, for example, in the shootout in the desert, he helps the British, which are technically on his team. Uh, Ray Fine's character even says that we're on the same side, guys. And he puts the needs of Sanborn and Eldridge ahead of his own. Excellent. Thank you for that discussion. Now we're going to turn to the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. And Anne, you're going to take us through those. I will. Beginning hook. When the well-liked leader of Bravo Company, a bomb disposal squad in Baghdad, is killed by an insurgent's bomb, the team must come to terms with his replacement, a maverick who recklessly endangers them and the mission with his disregard for safety and protocol. As usual, we summarize each of the three acts in a sentence, and the details of the five commandments within the acts will be in the show notes. The middle build. Sanford overcomes some of his distrust of James, but when James discovers Beckham's dead body, that's the boy, the soccer playing boy, and the camp psychiatrist is killed by an IED, James goes looking for answers and revenge, reviving Sanford's doubts and mistrust. The ending payoff, James's recklessness reaches a critical point when he puts his men in danger and accidentally shoots Eldridge in the leg. He must face his addiction when he's unable to disarm a suicide bomb and is forced to let a man die, but he can't overcome it and re-enlists for another year. Thanks, Anne. Those are great details. Okay, next we turn to the obligatory scenes and conventions of the war story. Valerie, can you take us through those? I sure can. First of all, we have an inciting attack. And of course, this is when uh, Staff Sergeant Thompson dies in the roadside bomb explosion. And this is 10 minutes into the film. Second, the protagonist sidesteps responsibility to respond. I'm not sure I would call my first example a conscious sidestepping of responsibility. But in that inciting attack scene, Eldridge, who is not the main protagonist, fails to take out the trigger man, the guy on the cell phone, before he detonates the bomb that kills Thompson. Um, I would look more at James as the central character and his sidestepping, his responsibility to look after his son and his family. And this comes in the ending payoff which interestingly 
doesn't jibe with the hero's journey. The refusal of the call in the hero's journey usually comes at the end of the beginning hook. And I argue that this is coming in the ending payoff. So we have James returning after his tour of duty, returning home to his son and his girlfriend or his wife. At one point, James says he's not even sure if he's still married, but he isn't able to stay with them or even love them. He chooses to war instead of staying home and being his fathers to his son. So I think that's him sidestepping his responsibility. Third, we have forced to respond the protagonists lash out according to the positions in the hierarchy. This for me comes in the, the big fire scene when James, who is the ranking officer, leads Sanborn and Eldridge past the blast radius in pursuit of the enemy. And he even says, you know, a really good bad guy would be hiding in the dark. Sanborn and Eldridge have to follow him because he's the commanding officer. However, Sanborn initially refuses and he reminds James that it's the infantry infantry's job, not theirs. And that scene is about an hour and 40 minutes into the film. Next, we have each character learns what their antagonist's object of desire is. Now, we can look at there being two antagonists in this story. The obvious one in a war story, of course, is the enemy. It's, in this case, the Iraqis. And we don't have an overt statement of the antagonist's object of desire. But we know from the bomb placements and the suicide bombers that what they want is to destroy the UN and the Allied troops. And we do have in some of the scenes, we actually have people on nearby buildings looking down. One guy is videotaping the whole thing, which is fascinating, a fascinating uh, commentary there. We can also look within the trio, James, Sanborn, and Eldridge, and see James as the force of antagonism there. I'm not going to say he's the villain, but the force of antagonism. And when Sanborn and Eldridge discover the box of detonators, uh, I think it's under his bed, they understand what makes James tick. He's all about bombs. And when I wrote this, I didn't mean to have a, a pun in there, but it's a pretty good one. So I left it. James wants to defuse the bombs and he needs to have the adrenaline rush. Next, we have the protagonist's initial strategy to outmaneuver the antagonist fails. The only way these characters can outmaneuver the antagonist the Iraqis, is to defuse the bombs. The only exception to this is the desert scene where there's a shootout, but other than that, it's all about defusing bombs. And James, of course, that's his special skill. He, he can really do this. The only time he fails is right at the end of the film when you have the guy who has the bomb strapped to his body with the timer, the watch timer chained to him. The locks are made from case-hardened steel that can't easily be cut by the bolt cutters that James has. And because he only has two minutes to, to defuse the bomb, he fails. And I don't know that that's really outmaneuver, but that's the only time he, he fails to defuse the bomb. We did have the bomb going off in the inciting attack, but that doesn't have anything to do with James because he hasn't arrived yet. Next, realizing they must change their approach to attain a measure of victory, the protagonists reach an all-is-lost moment. Now, the all-is-lost moment is the lowest point for the character in a story, and it's followed by an epiphany. So for James, I would argue that the lowest point comes in the ending payoff when he has returned home, and it's that scene when he's playing with his son, and they have the jack-in-the-box, and he actually looks 
right in his son's eyes and says that quote that Kim just mentioned, how there's only one or two things you might love. And in my case, I think it's only one. He's looking at his infant son and recognizing that he loves war and and defusing the bombs more than his son. I don't know that you can go any lower than that. The epiphany comes kind of at the same time. His epiphany is that war is what he loves. So I'm sure this is supposed to be poignant, but honestly, I had a hard time connecting with it because throughout the film, we never really got a sense that James ever missed his family that much or wanted a connection with them that much. He has the picture of his son in the box of detonators. It's not on his body anywhere or close by. We don't see him looking at it throughout the film. It's just there in a box of detonators. He does call his girlfriend at one point, but he doesn't speak with her. He says that his wedding ring is in the box of detonators because it's among the things that almost killed him. So to me, it was the lowest point, but it sort of lost some of the impact. Next, we have the big battle scene. So every story builds to a core event. And in a war story, uh, this is the big battle scene, and it's where the protagonist's gifts are either expressed or destroyed. In this scene, or in this film, I think that the big battle scene is actually one man against one man. It is James against the guy who has the bombs strapped to him. He's unable to defuse it, and the gifts that we've seen him display over and over throughout the film are destroyed. It fails. Now, in saying that, if I step back from the film and watch it without trying to analyze it, the big battle scene to me felt like the big fire scene where they chase uh, the bad guy into the darkness. And that was at about an hour, 40 minutes into the film. And this is the scene where Eldridge uh, got shot, where James shot Eldridge. And finally, we have the protagonists that are rewarded on at least one level of satisfaction, either external, interpersonal, or intrapersonal. I don't see this one, to be honest. If we contrast this film with A Midnight Clear, where we saw a mother get a commendation and a transfer to a safer place, none of those types of things, in my opinion, works in this movie. I don't think either James Sanborn or Eldridge are rewarded. James is sent home, but he can't, he can't survive there. He can't live there. He wants to come back to war and signs on for another uh, tour of duty. Sanborn, we assume, goes home and has a family with his girlfriend, but it's the girl he likes. He doesn't love her. So maybe there is some satisfaction in becoming a father, but we don't see any of this play out. And Eldridge does get to go home, which is what he wanted, but he got shot to do it. (laughs) So I I can't really see that as a reward. And other than that, the only thing that I saw that would be a reward of any kind was a really brief moment after the UN building bombing scene where Colonel Reed compliments James on how many bombs he's defused. And that struck me as a really strange scene. We don't see Colonel Reed beforehand. We don't see him afterward. We're not even really sure who he is. And he seems to be quite starstruck by James. And James, for some reason, is being modest about how many bombs he's defused. This is what James lives for. This is the thing he loves. This is the thing that gets him through the day. And he's 
He's not going to brag about it to a commanding officer, but if he's asked a direct question by a commanding officer, he's simply going to state, 873 bombs, sir. Uh, so that felt a little bit weird to me. But there we have it. So I I could find all of the obligatory scenes there, but I felt like some of them I was really stretching. I see the movie as being sort of a war story and sort of really more a story about addiction. And if you look at it that way, which they make fairly explicit with the opening quote on the screen, that war is a drug, the Colonel Reed, the character who's grinning and congratulating James on his number of bomb defusings, uh, is an enabler. You need an enabler in every drug story. He represents that the army is very happy to have James continuing to practice his addiction. So I was I was actually okay with that. I saw exactly what that was. And James's mo- apparent modesty about it was more like, yeah, I shoot up every day. It, I don't want to talk about it until I'm forced to say. That's how I read the, that as part of the really strong underlying addiction story. I also see his all is lost moment as the shower scene where after he has accidentally shot Eldridge, he gets in the shower fully clothed and blood washes off his uniform and down the drain and he collapses because this is the moment where he finally realizes the extent of his addiction, the actual consequences of his addiction, and probably the crisis of his own arc where he's pretty sure he's not going to overcome it. He's going to succumb to it. And he makes it, he kind of rises a little bit again at the end, trying to go home and lead a normal life, but he can't do it. And he knows it, I think, in that shower scene. So that was my view of his always lost moment. Excellent insights. I wonder if, and as you were saying that about how it very much is about the story about addiction, I wonder if that and I don't know that I really want to make this argument, but it feels a little bit like maybe the internal genre for James could even be the global story in this instance, based on the way that they open the story with the quote and the way that they close it with him going back to war. It definitely bookends, you know, his in that internal argument for that is really strong there, maybe more than the traditional war story. That was certainly my thought as I was watching it. It's set against a backdrop of war. There are lots of war story elements, but it innovated that by its opening quote that war is a drug. Those are great insights. And I think it, this underlines the point that we bring ourselves to the stories that we're watching and writing and that we're going to have different takeaways sometimes when we're seeing a film so or reading a novel. So Valerie sees something different from what Anne sees and Kim sees, and that that's a really important point, I think, to make. So next we have conventions. Kim, would you like to take us through those? Absolutely. So the first convention of War Story is that we have one central character with offshoot characters that embody a multitude of that character's personality traits. So here... As we've said, we have a three characters on a team. We have Sanborn and Eldridge and the new bomb tech that comes in, James. So James ends up being our central character. He is the addict in this story. Um, he's fearless and reckless. So Sanborn is brave, but he's wise about safety. And Eldridge is a good soldier, but he's tormented by dying. So it's interesting because you can see where if James is in the center, you know, you have Sanborn has certain aspects that he has, right? He's brave, but he's also, he's not reckless, right? 
he knows what it is to, you know, be a good leader and he's willing to take that risk, but he's also, you know, he's not an idiot, right? He's wise about safety. Where Eldridge, you know, he knows how to, he follows orders, he does his best and he finds moments of bravery, but he's so tormented by dying and by other people dying that it consumes him. And so in those instances, they're an interesting matchup for James's character. The next convention is a big canvas, either a wide scope external setting like War and Peace or a wide internal landscape like Saving Private Ryan or Platoon. So here we definitely have the internal landscape. We've got the psyche of the soldier in war. He's dealing with the daily threat of death. Um, They have complicated love-hate relationships with one another. We've got the ghosts of home. And absolutely, we have the quote that's presented at the opening. The rush of battle is often a potent and lethal addiction for war is a drug by Chris Hedges. And so here we definitely have that internal landscape, which, you know, we just mentioned, Anne and I are starting to think that this is an internal genre global story as opposed to an external genre global story. So that would make sense where the war story is paired with an internal landscape. Um, The next one is overwhelming odds. The protagonists are substantially outnumbered. Here we have the threats that they face are invisible. You know, the bombs themselves are hidden and disguised, just like the insurgents who place them. The EOD unit must perform their job under watchful eyes. They're unable to determine if the onlookers are civilians or insurgents. And also, quite literally, there are very few EOD units and bomb techs. So one person must do this job while squads of other soldiers look on. And so it is that one man against the world kind of thing. And um, you're dealing with this very deadly, sophisticated enemy, which is bombs. The next convention is a clear point of no return when the combatants accepts the inevitability of death. In this, I'm thinking it's the moment in the ending payoff when James is unable to cut the locks from the bomb that's strapped to the man's chest. This is the only bomb that he hasn't been able to defuse, and he must accept that the man will die. And he says how sorry he is, and he runs for cover. And that is really him having to face death, face his own limitations that he won't always win. The next convention is the sacrifice for the brotherhood moment. So because this is an anti-war story and it's not a brotherhood story, this moment does not show up in the way that it would otherwise. I think if this was a straight brotherhood subgenre, that the sacrifice for the brotherhood moment would likely be part of the climax of the story, the ending payoff, you know, it would have some real moment of significance. But here, it's just a piece of the story. And so we don't see a major sacrifice for the brotherhood, but we do see it in small moments where they do try to bond. You know, they have their their fun moments of, you know, getting drunk and wrestling and punching each other in the stomach for some reason. <laughs> but But also, you know, we see the moment when they are hunkered down with the snipers and James does give Sanborn his Capri Sun juice instead of keeping it for himself. Yeah, I think some brotherhood is shown like in that juice box moment where James makes a very small sacrifice for his comrades. But I feel like the loss of brotherhood or the the negation of brotherhood, the betrayal of brotherhood is is really the story. And that happens because of Sergeant James's addiction. So I feel like... Brotherhood is there in negative very strongly. I think that's a great analysis because I think that's what makes it so clear. And I think uh, even with some of what Valerie was saying about the obligatory scenes is I think we're expecting to see the obligatory scenes happen in the positive. But in this case, because it's a negative story, they're not going to be rewarded, right? Because it's a negative story. So it's almost like you ha- we have to maybe even adjust our obligatory scenes 
based on, you know, on the way the story's ending or the story that you're trying to tell. And it might not show up in the same way. So I think that's a really great example. In this case, they don't see the reward. They see the loss or we, the audience, we really see the loss. And I think that works perfectly with what you're saying in the brotherhood in the negative story. So yeah, awesome. So that's it for the conventions. Um, There's not very many. But, you know, having them is going to be really important. And I guess I would also just point out that when you're doing this kind of story or any story, if you do have an internal arc that you'll want to look at the obligatory scenes and conventions of that and ensure that those are fit in as well. Because I bet if we looked at a morality testing story, um, the obligatory scenes and conventions here for this movie, that we would see those quite clearly. Yeah, I'd feel comfortable listing this movie as an example of a morality testing surrender plot, which are fairly rare stories in our canon. And I think it's a, it's a useful yes, example. They are. I've <laughs> searched for them. <laughs> I've searched for them and searched for them. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to find another example um, because I find the testing story very poignant for our own lives <laughs> as writers, right? Trying to battle resistance. And so I'm fascinated by the morality genre in, in general. And so I'm, yeah, I'm very happy to find another example of it. Ah, great insights. Thanks. Next, we look at the point of view and narrative device, and Jari is going to talk about those. Yeah, I mean, this is done with a lot of, I mean, in terms of the camera, a lot of first person, third person, jerky movements kind of embedded with the guys. But it is a third person omnipresent because you really don't kind of get in the heads of the characters other than maybe Sanborn, you get a little bit of his perspective because he's the one that's trying to figure out how to not get killed because of Sergeant James, because Sergeant James is a bit of a maverick. But you do see a lot of the story told from like how Sergeant James is dealing with it. And so you do you do get some different points of view. I mean, you, you even get the point of view of the little robot going off to uh, blow up an IED. But it's it's really embedded first person, like a journalist in the field with these guys. And so if if this was actually a book, I'm not sure how this would be written because you don't get a lot of sense of what goes on in Sergeant James's head. I mean, you don't know kind of what created him like this. I mean, you do see some of his reaction to things and as Anne mentioned, you know, he's, he's, he has some compassion. He's not a psychopath. Like I originally thought he's just a little nutty. But it, it, it's, it may be a little hard for on the written page how this would all work. And then the narrative device, I mean, th- this is told in real time. There's no flashbacks. There's just a lot of suspense on you don't know who you can trust. You don't know what's behind every corner. They do a really good job of creating a lot of tension. I mean, the randomness of the violence, the randomness of how things happen. They get the call on the radio. They go, the chaos of who's doing what, where are people? We can't find the truck. We don't know where things are. It's just like really well done. And I think partly because the writer, uh, the screen, the person who wrote the screenplay was an embedded reporter. Uh, And I think you get the embedded reporter sense, not only in the point of view, but how the, how the story is being told. So really great example of that. 
And as for the narrative device, they have this countdown mechanism, right? So when James first enters the company, they have on the screen, they show days left in Bravo company rotation. And we begin with 38 days and count all the way down. And then we get to see James back home in the United States. And then the final scene, we show him back in Iraq, days left in Delta company rotation, 365. So just even having those, um, which, you know, in they work great in a movie where you have that the text overlay of different things, but also we, we see that often in books at the beginning of chapters, you know, we'll have this countdown kind of thing. So those are really interesting techniques, whether you're doing, you know, an epistolary story or just even keeping track like in a thriller, you know, or how many days, you know, we've seen that in a lot, that device used in a lot of different ways. And it works really effectively here to see that 365. And we're like, oh, that's really what helps us understand what he's chosen to do. Yeah. I mean, and and you also, again, as I mentioned before, see this in the randomness of, of the violence and how fast things turn. I mean, there's not a lot of buildup set up in some of these things. It's literally like, oh my God, it just blew up. Now what do we do? And that kind of chaos puts you on the edge of your seat because you, you don't know what's going to happen next. When I was watching this, I just felt like tense, you know, I'm like, oh, please don't, no, please don't be an IED. Oh no, don't, please don't blow it up. And then, so they, they do from a setup and payoff kind of thing, the setups aren't very long and, and the payoffs are kind of like, again, these random acts of violence, but it works because it's in a war setting. It's in the chaos of the moment. It's in embedded reporter mode. And so really, really well done that way. And I think war stories generally are a really great example of the importance of the point of view, because the battle is going to look completely different depending who's telling it, which side of the battle the protagonist is on. And even within this movie, we've got it narrowed down even more. It's not just the the UN point of view, it is the U.S. military point of view. And anyone who is not in that group is an outsider of sorts and is not portrayed particularly favorably. You've got obviously the enemy, which is always going to be portrayed as the enemy in a war movie, and that's the Iraqis. So they're obviously not going to be portrayed favorably. But you've got allied forces as well. The U.N. soldier at the, uh, the U.N. building, who is French, I believe, is portrayed as a coward, and James actually makes fun of him. And you've got the British contractors in the desert who can't seem to last 10 minutes after the U.S. soldiers arrive. And I found that really weird because they'd clearly been out there a while with Iraqis in the building, with the enemy in the building. They couldn't have arrived after the U.S soldiers, because they would have been seen. It's a desert. There's really nowhere for them to hide. It's just sand dunes. Yet it's once James and company arrive that the skirmish breaks out and the British are killed really quickly. And I don't know if that is something that would be obvious to an American watching this film in America, but I'm Canadian and I live in Canada. So it's something that we're kind of used to seeing when we watch U.S. films. And since I know a lot of the people listening are not in the States, I'm just curious to see if that is something that is noticeable to other people who aren't in the States. Or maybe I'm just hypersensitive. I don't know. (laughs) But I would love for you to tell me 
on Twitter at StoryGridRT. <laughs> that's great. I think that's a really important point for stories is thinking about the specific audience that you are working with. All right. So next, we're going to look at the objects of desire. In other words, the wants and needs. Jari, you're going to take us through this one? Yeah. For for Sergeant James, his want, I mean, he loves the rush of war. He's an adrenaline junkie. I think what he really needs, and this was tough for me, I mean, he really needs to be loved for who he is. I mean, he, he can't really handle the real world. And I think it's because of his addiction and he can't attach to even his own son. He can only connect to the addiction of war. I mean, he needs connection and you can see him really struggling with that with, with Beckham, um, with some of his other teammates and he has some compassion, but his addiction just takes over. And so... You know, anybody that's been around people that are addicts know that they can't help themselves. They want to do better, but the the addiction holds them so tight that it's hard to do. So, uh, you know, it, it's again, it's a, a little a little tricky for me. It is a little tricky, and I think in terms of the the need here, because if we're talking about a morality plot, we're dealing with putting the needs of others before your own. And it's really interesting because if James could do that, could think about his team, could connect with people instead of using the adrenaline rush to meet several needs in his hierarchy, then he could be an even more amazing asset than he is. That's totally true. My original thought was this was didn't have much of an internal genre, but but now, I mean, you just, I mean, all the, these great comments and you just got to really think, wow, maybe this is internally driven by his addiction to war. And it, that comes through, but it's a little muddled because I, I personally still think it's an anti-war movie because as we talk about what the controlling idea will be next, you see that they are putting a very clear perspective on how damaging war is, not just battlefield damage, the burnt out buildings, the chaos, but the internal damage. And you see that and you see some people handle that in different ways. And so, so when it, when it comes to the controlling idea or, or the theme here, anti-war deals with victory and defeat. Um, and an anti-war movie really wants the audience to think about the true cost of war, even in victory. And this movie does a really great job of that because it really shows the true cost of war. Even if you've won, you've still got to rebuild whatever you've conquered. But more importantly, when the soldiers come back, um, they, like Sergeant James, I mean, he's addicted to it. You, you turn quote unquote normal people into addicts and you know, that, that's a hard thing to swallow because a lot of times the people that make these policies, you know, they're not boots on the ground. They're not, they're not there dealing with the harsh realities. And even the, the people that have, are being, you know, quote unquote liberated, the harsh realities of that are even more disturbing. So I think, I think for me, um, f the controlling idea of this is the protagonist is defeated 
even when he has victory on the battlefield because the cost of victory robs him of his sanity and his uh, humanity. And I think if we think a little bit more about, well, he's really addicted to this, then war is feeding his addiction. Uh, and there's people that are enabling his, his addiction like that colonel that Anne mentioned. So this seems to me a great example of the internal struggles of Sergeant James and how that manifests itself as well as the chaos of war told from an embedded reporter perspective. And it's just disturbing. It's well done, but disturbing. Yeah, it's definitely disturbing. Thank you for that, Shari. So next we turn to good examples. And here we're looking for story-related comments outside the six core questions. Yeah, I mean, I think the embedded point of view uh, is really great. I mean, this is like, you know, Blair Witch Project, which also got a lot of acclaim for its, you know, shaky, we're right there with you. What's This is the perspective of the person. You know, you're seeing... You're seeing it firsthand, uh, and 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 again in in the as I mentioned before in the opening scene, this is particularly well done. I mean, if if you want to open a, a movie, you know, in a different way, I mean, the way they open that with the the robot going up to the bomb and just the the craziness of all that it was really really well done. It sets it up nicely, I think, for what's to come. At about um, an hour and twenty nine minutes, and James. We see James using a satellite phone to call his son's mother. And on its surface, it's kind of hard to understand why he doesn't speak, unless you recognize it as the junkie or drunk phoning home scene, which you see in stories about addiction. Realizing that he had nothing to say because he's not going to quit drinking or using. And I thought it was a really interesting innovation, putting that it's normally that type of scene it takes place in uh, a seedy bar or a roadhouse or something like that. And in this case, setting it against the backdrop of the the war with the sun setting over the desert and, and this satellite phone, it was a nice innovation. I also thought there was a really good use of visual contrast and symbolism at the end of the movie to emphasize how much uh, Sergeant James's life has changed and how much he doesn't like it. In the closing scenes, after we've had two hours of bright sun, heat, dust, and just thirst and desert situations uh, with no total barren landscape with no plants growing, we see James on a ladder cleaning wet leaves out of a gutter in the rain and then washing mushrooms in a kitchen sink full of water. You, you pick these details. They're very specific. It could have been anything. He might have gone home in the summertime. But no, they had him go home when it's wet and muddy and mushroomy and moldy, as contrasted with the dry, uh, bright, desperate desert. And we we sort of almost understand there why he wants to go back. And it reminded me a little bit of a scene in Lawrence of Arabia where someone asks Lawrence why he loves the desert. And Lawrence says, because it's clean. Oh, wow. Yes. And I'm reminded of how he wanted to let the sunshine into the room, you know, where he was staying. Yeah. Yeah. He took the board down mm -hmm. against safety regulations so that he could have that light shining in on him. 
Right. So I think this film raises another question about how accurate fiction needs to be when portraying real life situations and, and how much responsibility does the storyteller have to make it precise or accurate. And personally, I notice in legal dramas that they rarely get everything right. They frequently get quite a bit wrong. But the underlying truth of the situation and that would be truth with a capital T, seems to be included in or portrayed within the novel or film. And there's a lot of criticism of the Hurt Locker on the basis that it's not realistic and it portrays these professionals in a bad light. It's also, there's also some other criticism, but, but this, it, in terms of our stories and how we focus on how accurate do we need to be. Tom Clancy's novels are generally praised for their accuracy and precision. And what we need to remember is that stories aren't real life and that accuracy could be difficult to impossible for lots of different reasons. And the best approach, I think, for the writer is to consider their goals for the story and what is the truth that they intend to communicate through the story. And if they nail that through story structure, through character action being consistent, then the story will convey the message even if it's not quite accurate in terms of the real world. (laughs) I think they timed this movie perfectly. I mean, this is the perfect product market fit for a society going through the trials of war. The Iraq war is between 2003 and 2011. This movie comes out in 2008. It's like the perfect storm of all the craziness and the surge. And and, and this is important for even people that tell stories because sometimes you may have a great story and the timing may be off. And that doesn't mean it's not a great book. It doesn't mean you're not doing your job. But a lot of the reason why this movie resonated and I think won all the awards is because it hit it perfectly with the tension that society was going through. The thing to remember is, is that stories resonate. When when a story resonates with society, you can uh, overlook a lot of quote unquote flaws in it because it speaks to you. And this perfectly speaks to the conditions at the time. And even as someone that is of the age where I have friends that are in EOD. And I've heard firsthand stories about some of this chaos. And it is just really well done in terms of feeding into that in a society level. Because again, you know, we tell stories for truth. Yeah, the, you know, some of the facts might be a little weird, maybe munched together, but this speaks truth to the horrors of war and to how some soldiers are addicted to that rush and they it's a tough transition and this perfectly encapsulates that so bravo to them for that all right thank you that wraps it up for this week that was a great discussion thanks to ann jari kim and valerie for excellent editorial insights into the hurt locker we hope our discussion helps you write a better war story links to the fool's cap and other materials will be in the show notes document 
We'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations. And if you have a favorite movie that you'd like us to look at, suggest it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com slash editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers and editors about us and by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. Next time, East Meets Western. Join us as we analyze the film that revived a whole genre from an ocean away and spawned the spaghetti western. Akira Kurosawa's 1961 samurai masterpiece, Yojimbo. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. 